We are in 1 Kings chapter 5 this morning. If you're new here, this is what we've been doing for a few weeks now. It's going through the book of Kings, which is 1 and 2 Kings all together. It's really one book. And we are into, we've looked at the end of David's reign and the end of David's life and the handover from David to Solomon. And we've had some foreshadowing about how Solomon is going to, he's going to mess things up eventually, uh, but he has a really good start. And, and this is probably the quintessential example of what he did right. This is, this is Solomon at the peak of his powers, um, what he's going to do this morning, okay? And we're going to get a, a hint, another hint, another bit of foreshadowing about maybe some stuff in his heart that's weak, that's going to ultimately trip him up. Um, but all in all, you know, we're trying to stay positive because things go real sideways later. There's going to be plenty of time for negativity. Uh, so for now, we'll try to keep it positive. But Solomon uh, is going to build the temple. And if you've been reading along in this section, you're going to hit this part. And uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to read through. It's like reading a genealogy. Um, you, it seems very irrelevant, and I'm going to try my best this week and next week. We'll be talking about temple stuff this week and next week. Uh, I'm going to try my best to pull it out of a kind of ancient you know, irrelevance where it just seems like a lot of description with no explanation, right? Just a lot of detail. It's like somebody walked through um, with, with a great eye for detail and walked through the temple and cataloged everything that they saw, every detail, and put it here. But there's a reason for that. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to, this morning especially, focus on helping you picture this, this structure and how amazing it was and then begin to draw, some, draw out some themes in the symbolism of the building to show you how that applies to you because it really really does okay but it'll take us a minute all right um and then next week we'll get into this morning we'll be looking at kind of the the main structure the outside the walls the floor the ceiling kind of stuff that's the first description you get and then the really detailed stuff is all the the bits that went into it all the stuff they made that go inside of it which is where it really gets like what does this all mean and so if you're really into this stuff this is just my warning right if you're really, really into the symbolism of everything in the temple, you might be a little disappointed. It's, this is a lot like the book of Revelation, interestingly enough, where there's so much detail, you can kind of get lost in the weeds, and it, it, they're fun weeds to get lost in, okay? But it makes for really boring sermons, all right? So I'm going to stick with the broad themes, and if you want to get down into the details, like why you know, was the, what, what does this pillar mean? What's, why is it given a name, a person's name? What does that mean? All that kind of stuff. I can give you that information and you can go nuts with it if you want, okay? Um, but I'm just not going to do it here because we'd be here for weeks, okay? Um, so that's my approach, all right? So if you're disappointed, I'm sorry. I think most of us will not be, all right? Um, but that to say, it seems like when Solomon constructed and planned out and built the temple everything was symbolic including the existence of the temple itself okay 
that those details really do matter, and that's why they're in here. So, so, so don't think they don't matter when you're reading. They do matter, and they do mean something. And if you were a worshiping Israelite at the time, and you walked into this, that building, you, it, it would have reminded you of some very specific things, okay? Um, that's what that's about. Okay, so let's get into the story. We're in um, 1 Kings chapter 5. In chapter 5, I'm going to summarize some things, and we'll read some things. I'll try to strike a balance there. We see Hiram, the king of Tyre, so not a Jew, um, a Gentile king, but had been an ally to David previously and is now a friend of Solomon. He likes Solomon. He's always his, I've always liked that kid Solomon. That's kind of Hiram's attitude about Solomon, and Solomon's the new king. So they strike a deal, and there's a couple of paragraphs of negotiations where they decide basically Hiram is going to, he's got all these cedars on his land. And he's got all these craftsmen that know how to carve wood and cut down the trees and move the trees and do all of their craftsmen. They're really good at this kind of work. They, they're on the coast. And so they also have access to trade routes. And this is a very important uh, friendship that comes not just in order to build the temple, but for Israel's future. Um, it's a very important connection that, Solomon makes with Hiram, okay? And Hiram says, you can contract me. I'll supply all these cedars in Le- from Lebanon. to bring. We'll bring them in, and we'll do all the carving and cutting and everything for you. It'll be beautiful and amazing. And then Solomon's payment, first Solomon offers to pay his workers wages. And Hiram says, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no need for that. Uh, instead, just send a, you know, basically truckloads of food to my family and feed my family. And that's the deal they make, okay? In order to get the work done, Solomon conscripts over 150,000 workers from Israel to build the temple. They are forced to work one month with three off until the temple is completed. It took seven years to finish. So this is one of the answers to Samuel's prediction when he said you don't want a king. One of his things was you'll have to work You'll be forced to, it's forced labor. And they would have technically not called this slavery because when the work was done, they were free to go back to work and they didn't have to work year round. But it's sort of close. It's, it's a little bit like in this country during Vietnam, we forced people to go fight in the war. And then we said, it's not slavery. We're just making you go fight in a war because when the war's over, you can come home and you don't have to fight anymore. So it would have been about that popular. We actually see in here there's some grumbling and complaining that happens about why am I being forced to build this thing? It's not quite fair. And this is just the beginning of Solomon's ability to gather forced labor to do his projects as he builds some amazing big structures, including his own palace, right? So let's do it. look at an overview. Chapter 6 gives us an overview summary of the building itself, and then chapter 7 describes in detail what went inside. Chapter 7 will be next week. So the overall dimensions of the temple are 90 feet long and 45 feet wide, almost four stories high. It's actually not that big. I actually came in here this week, and I walked off. I didn't get out of measuring tape, so I'm sorry if I'm not exact, but just walked off the space, the dimensions that he gives, and so it's right at, I mean, just walking it anyway, 90 feet from this wall to those two doors. So that's the length of Solomon's temple, and the width is just a little shy of the width of the stage. 
So it's not that big. We could all fit in there. Um, and so that's a, this is not Herod's temple in Jesus' day, which was a different temple, a different story, but it was enormous. And I've got a comparison chart to show you. But this is in your notes, but it also will be up on the screen. You can see the size difference. Pretty interesting. So the materials inside were amazing, okay, despite its size. The, we're talking like gold laid over. So you had stone that was hand-carved, these big, thick stones, and they were stacked in place. And then inside that was this, this fresh-cut cedar. You can imagine, I just, I just immediately think of the smell would have been amazing, right? And then gold overlaid over the cedar in most places. So it would have been like shiny, reflective, noisy. Imagine just being in a wall, in a room that small where the walls are made of gold. Just the, the, and you just put one candle on in there and the whole place is just lit like reflective and that yellow gold color. It's amazing. So I want to read a couple of descriptions. One is of the holy place. We'll see this in... Chapter 6, verse 16 to 22, let's read that together. He says, He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. So you imagine a room kind of on this end. Gold all the way around and it's separated off. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is going to go. That's the, the most holy place. And they had 15 foot high cherubim carved out of wood and overlaid in gold. Their wings spread across where the ark would go between them. So imagine whatever 15 feet high is. would be impressive. And just think about the scale to the room, the size of the room you're in. It would have been the dominant focal point of the whole place. These scary looking angelic creatures with their wings out like this. Let's look at a description just of the entrance. This is verse 31 to 36. He says, For the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square. And two doors of cypress wood, the two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the carved work. 
built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. So I have here two pictures. One is the outside of this, just taking this description and showing you what the outside would have looked like. And then the inside with all the gold and the carvings. It's immaculate. I mean, that's a lot of gold. But you got to melt down just right and spread evenly over all that wood so that the car thin enough that the carvings show through and I mean, it's just hard to imagine the, the work and the amount of burned fingers, I imagine, that came out of this cuts and bruises and burns. So try to imagine this. I think this is important. Because for us, it's what makes this, some of this seem a little irrelevant as you've never seen it with your own eyes. These people would have seen it. They knew exactly what he was describing. They'd been in there. They'd seen it. Imagine those massive stone walls, the weight of of this structure, that the, the noise from outside you can't hear. When you walk in there, it's quiet because the walls are thick. But you can't see any stone. What you see is either gold or expertly crafted wood and the smell of cedar. Every square inch is carved with palm trees and these open flowers and these cherubim angelic creatures. The the, the dominant example are the two up by the ark. In the Holy of Holies were 15 foot tall statues. If you had endless resources and wanted to build a house for God, this is what you would do. If, you had, if money was no object and you could get any material you wanted the, the, and you didn't, you didn't even have to think about what it cost because you could just get it. This is, and you were thinking, like, I want to build a house that God would live in. This is what you would imagine, or something close to it. For most people, this was probably the most jaw-dropping thing anyone had ever seen and would ever see. It was amazing. So I want to draw your attention to the huge volume of nature imagery. It's one of the first things I think that you notice in this description. Is all the, you know, the trees... The animals, the flowers. This points us back, I believe, to the beginning of creation itself, to the Garden of Eden. If you look in Genesis 1, God creates the earth and then creates mankind in his image to fill it. God created because he is a God of relationship. That's why he made human beings. It's not because he needed relationship with us. It's not because he had a man or woman-shaped void in his heart. God created because... He loves to have relationship. He loves to spread his glory around. He loves to love things. And so he made things to love and that would love him in return. And he puts them in this place, right? This creation. This, this place where he's going to meet them. That's what the earth is. He said, I'm gonna, I want to have a place to go where they can be and I can be and we'll meet together and we'll hang out. And kind of the focal point of creation at the beginning, at least, was the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, the garden is the place where the meeting is focused. So the earth is the first temple, the garden the first holy place. It's the place where you go to meet with God. Adam and Eve are the caretakers of the earth, but they sin, right, and are cast out of the garden. Adam and Eve are the first priesthood, the first ones, the first stewards 
of the temple, of the place where you go to meet God. They were the stewards of it. And they sinned and they were cast out of the holy place because of sin. And then what does God do? God kills an animal and he puts the skin of the animal over them because they're naked and ashamed. He covers their sin or the results of their sin with a sacrifice. This is the first sacrifice for sin. Then he, then he casts them out of the garden. It's interesting if you read that account, you'll see one little sentence sort of hidden away in there. Where there's a, What does God do at the, at the entrance to the garden as he puts a cherubim there with a sword? And the purpose of that angelic being is to, is to not allow them back in. You cannot, your sin has cast you out. You're no longer worthy to be in the holy place. You can't come in here. And he puts a cherubim there with a sword to guard it. Flaming swords. I wonder what that looked like. It's probably scary. It's pretty clear. Do not enter. <laughs> right? Solomon put golden cherubim standing over the Ark of the Covenant, which is the entrance back into relationship with God. That's where the priest would go once a year. It's the focal point of the whole building, the whole structure, guarded by cherubim. So the temple is a promise that there's a way back into relationship with God. And for them, it was bringing sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again to this temple, coming to that entrance way back into the garden, back into relationship with God, guarded by his scary cherubim, coming back to that place year after year after year, atoning for sin after atoning for sin, year after year after year, never quite feeling like we've made our way through the guarded gate. We can regain. It's a promise. It's not the answer. It's the promise. The temple itself is a promise saying you can regain relationship with God. We can regain what we had in Eden when we walked with God in the cool of the day. What a, I've always thought about that. But right before the fall, you have this picture of Somehow, however this worked, God coming. I wonder if it was Jesus, I don't know, in the form of a man, something. Some, some form. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day and they talked. Like God doesn't have a body, he doesn't walk, but somehow that was the description of what it was like, their relationship with him. And the temple is constructed in such a way as to promise you and say there's a way, there's hope to have that again. During the Passover, in Jesus' day, Jesus went to the temple. You might remember, this was Herod's massive version. The big version in that comparison chart. Jesus went in there because you could tell by the kind of sacrifices people brought if they were rich or poor. You could tell by what you brought. It's kind of like you can tell by what you wear or what you drive to church. Kind of what economic status you have and that division had grown and grown and grown to the point where there were money changers in the temple that would exchange your money and people were getting ripped off and Jesus goes into the temple knowing what it represents knowing what it symbolizes and he sees this going on and it's the opposite of what it's supposed to be it's the opposite message of what was supposed to be going out about what the temple was and he gets pretty mad 
You remember the infamous story, he starts kicking over tables, whipping people, making a scene. Right after that, obviously that generated some questions. <laughs> and John tells us about this interaction. John chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, or the Jews, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus says... I'm going to tear, this place is going to get torn down. In Matthew, in Matthew, it says, I'm going to tear it down. We know that happened. It's very soon after, in 70 AD, Rome, to quell an uprising, destroyed the temple. And it lays in ruins to this day. So you can look at that if you misunderstand Jesus' point and say, well, Jesus predicted half right. He predicted it would be destroyed, but it's still destroyed like I thought he was going to raise it up in three days. But he says he's talking about his body is the temple. What was raised up in three days? Jesus' body. And it wasn't until the resurrection that the disciples themselves understood what in the world he was on about. They were confused. Man, he just made a scene. And yeah, we're all for like sticking it to the religious establishment. But then you say these crazy things that don't make any sense. But then when Jesus rose three days later, they go, oh, that's what he was talking about. Jesus says, his body is the temple. In another place, he says, it's, uh, the, a better temple is here. A better temple than this one with all the gold <laughs> and the cedar and the fancy carvings and the doors and, the, and just the sheer size of it all and the, 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 the worship and the smells and every, the noise, the sounds, all of it going up is better than that. They couldn't imagine it. And he says, I, my body, is the temple. So if the temple is a promise, Jesus himself is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the place where God intersects with man. Jesus is where heaven meets earth. Jesus is God making himself, making himself known to us by opening that door between the cherubim through a new covenant of grace instead of the old covenant that will never be able to maintain. Maintain. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is where we go to meet with God. So Solomon's temple pointed back to the garden, to the promise of the garden, to the failure of the garden, to the sadness of the door closed and guarded, the way back to God closed. But Jesus comes and he answers the question. And he says, my body is that place. So we still journey to the temple to worship God and see our sins atoned for. We still go there, just not to the building. Instead of a temple made with human hands, that was Stephen's word. That's why they stoned Stephen. If you read his story and the speech he makes before they kill him, he calls them fools for believing that God would dwell in a house made with human hands. God was never contained by the temple. 
His presence was never held inside this box. Now, how, how beautiful and well-intentioned it was. He was never held there like a prisoner. It just represented something. Hebrews 9, 23 to 28, we have to read it. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. He's talking about the sacrifices that were made in the temple. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is profoundly good news. Because the Ark of the Covenant, we'll read about them bringing it in next week. That's the doorway, but it was not the old covenant, it was a new one. And the sacrifice, the blood poured over it, was not the sacrifice of rams and bulls and pigeons. It was the sacrifice of the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, once and for all. And that door into Eden got opened up forever. And it stays open. And it's held open by Christ himself. So your access to God is not based on goodness or deservedness on your part. If that's the system you want then just go back to the Old Testament and just make repeated, monotonous, hopeless sacrifices year after year where you watch a living creature slaughtered and the blood run down because of your sin. And you're reminded over and over and over again what a failure you have been. That's the old way. The new way is Christ makes that sacrifice. It is entirely based on the goodness and deservedness of Christ. I think life tends to conspire against this for us. When you succeed and do well in life, the temptation is to think, ah, at last, I have proven my value to God. I have impressed my friends. Look what I have accomplished. And you feel like somehow you've earned some kind of Maybe there's a little bit of goodness in me that can get me closer to God. Maybe you just think, I'm finally earning what the price he paid. As though you owe God some debt for his sacrifice. Or maybe if you're like the rest of us who don't succeed that often, you fail. <laughs> like really fail. Not just stub your toe kind of fail, but really fail. 
You mess up your life. And you think, ah, I knew it. Once again, I've proven what I already suspected, which is I am not worth the price paid. I have convinced God that his love for me is misplaced. And he should move on and bless somebody else. One of the ones around me that seems to have their act together. The thing about this gospel is all who want to come meet with God must come through the same door. We have to walk between the same cherubim as everyone else. And that door is Christ. And the only thing you get to carry through that door is Christ and his goodness. You do not get to carry your goodness through that door. You don't get, there's no, you have to leave it behind. The good side of that is you also have to leave your failures. Your miserable, shameful failures. All the sin, all the inability to be good enough to get past the angel at the door. You know, the regular people were not even allowed in the room where the door was. <laughs> we weren't even allowed in there. And the guys who were allowed to be in there were scared they were going to die. Because they didn't really think they were allowed to be in there, really. They didn't belong in there. They were sneaking in on behalf of other people. So you weren't even allowed near it to even make an attempt to get close to God. We all come through the same door. The strong and the weak, the rich and the poor, the most gifted and the least, the first and the last. We must leave our success and our failure outside the garden door and enter only with the goodness of Christ. That's it. And I know from experience that everybody in this room, your life lies to you constantly about this. It either tells you you don't measure up or it tells you that you do. And you start grabbing onto the things, the qualifications of the world and trying to impress God at the door and he's not impressed. What he wants you to do is open your hands and just drop it at the floor. All your goodness as Tim Keller calls it, all of your damnable good works. Isn't that a great phrase? <laughs> all your good works that you hold up, they will only get you into hell. And all of your damnable failures. I'm not cussing, I'm saying it the right way. <laughs> and you leave them at the door. So this is what I want to pray over this morning. That we would picture ourselves there in the temple, right? No access. Employees only. <laughs> Holy ones only. And we would imagine ourselves just because Christ has made the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, that we are not barred from entry, but instead we can walk right into the most holy place the way so many little People did along the way, like David, who would go into the holy place because he understood something. That we would go right into the presence of God and not feel excluded.
but also not try to bring our goodness in with us. Amen. So why don't we stand up together? I just want to pray for you. And God, we do um, just thank you for an open door. God, that you made a place, not a physical building where we have to go to, certainly not this building. But God, you made a way in Christ, the better temple. That when we go to him, there we find you. And in Christ, we can walk with you in the cool of the day and have that kind of conversational relationship with you where it's father and son, father and daughter, enjoying the time of just being loved by you. God, that is available to everyone. God, if we just put our faith in you, if we just believe that this is true, we have it. So God, I ask you for faith from the Holy Spirit to believe that this gospel is the true gospel, that it is the true good news, that it is the truth about who you are, that Jesus has made a way and it's the same door for everyone in this room. God, I pray for those of us who need to humble ourselves because of all of our goodness and all of our smarts and all of our giftedness all of our ability seems to have gotten us thus far in life, and we're just doing just fine. God, I pray that you would humble us down, that we would kneel down and come through that door where all of our goodness piled up means nothing compared to yours, and it does not get us through the door. God, give us the humility to lay it aside. God, I pray for those of us who feel like worms and failures crawling around in the dirt, never able to kind of get it together the way other people seem to. Those of us who've felt lost our whole lives, unable to connect, unable to make a way for ourselves. God, I pray for those that you would lift their weary head this morning and say I see through the weakness and the sin and I see a holy child of God I see the righteousness of Christ poured out all over you and that you would welcome them into the garden of your presence this morning God, thank you for making a way. God, help us to have the faith to take advantage of it and to live in your presence. So Holy Spirit, finally, I just ask this week that you would fill us afresh, starting right now in this moment. Fill us with wonder and awe. God, help us not to trust in our own works, our own goodness, our own ability, our own strength this week. But we would lean on you, that 
we will become people who pray without ceasing, who look for your open doors, who lean on you, lean on your goodness, lean on your righteousness alone. God, help us by your spirit to be people of joy this morning, who dance and rejoice because they have been let back into the garden. And they are spotless because of Christ. Restore the joy that we've lost. In the name of Jesus. Amen.